1: Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm your host, Aliza Arca. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Brandel, Associate Instructional Professor of the Social Sciences at the University of Chicago. We'll be talking about his book... Moving Words, Literature, Memory, and Migration in Berlin, published recently by the University of Toronto Press. Thank you very much, Andrew, for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much. It's, it's really exciting to be here and talk about this.
1: Yeah, we're very excited too, and we usually begin our episodes by getting to know our guests a little bit, so I'll ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself, and I'm especially curious about how you came to think between anthropology and literature, and how you came to this book.
0: Yeah, so that's kind of a roundabout story, as I think it is for many people. This is a book that grew out of a a pretty different project as an undergraduate I got really interested in German philosophy and I wanted to propose a research project that would let me look into the history of German philosophy from an anthropological point of view, which is an unusual project to pitch for a PhD in anthropology. And I was especially influenced or especially interested rather in the influence of books from India in Sanskrit in particular that came to Germany in the 19th century and played this hugely important role in shaping particularly romantic philosophy, but a lot of traditions. So I arrived in Germany for the first time to do fieldwork or to do really archival research, but I found myself hanging out more and more in these independent antiquarian bookshops, and which I found were still carrying copies of Sanskrit texts, often in translation, but sometimes in original. And I I started to get really enamored with the whole sort of culture of these independent bookshops. And as I was there, this was also a period where we started to see the rise, uh, or at least the public rise, of a kind of far-right nationalist politics and that really sort of came into its own mid my fieldwork with the so-called migrant crisis. And so I started to see that there was this really important echo between this history of colonial reading and what was happening in contemporary Germany, and that Berlin in particular played this sort of central role in the discourses that were uh, sort of developing at that particular time. And I, I ended up shifting the project to be more ethnographic or sort of more conventionally ethnographic in the sense that i took those contemporary practices to be a lens through which to understand something about what was happening at that particular at that particular moment so it, it sort of came in a roundabout way and the project sort of developed organically and the, and the sites that i ended up choosing were also ones that sort of were not comprehensive in any kind of sense. They weren't giving us a kind of overview. They weren't all from one sort of quote unquote community that was closed or whatever. But it was something where each was posing an interesting question or opened up something interesting about what was happening. And they inflected each other in different kinds of ways. So that's how the sort of patchwork um, came together.
1: Yeah, that's so exciting and such a you know, really succinct way to introduce us to the book. And my next questions will sort of try to detail the tidbits that you've just given us. So, you know, in the book, as you mentioned a little bit, you chronicle how Berlin is made literary, right? And that how that process has been imbricated with migration, memory, changes in urban life. So I'd love to hear more about what about literature provided an important entry point into these questions? And why in Berlin in particular?
0: That's a great question. And I think, it's as you say, it's totally related to my answer to the first question. And I think I say somewhere in the introduction that I'm sure that this using literature ethnographically will no doubt strike some people in anthropology as an unusual entry point. So what you kind of have to know about Germany is that during the long 19th century, what historians sometimes call the long 19th century, well before the emergence of a centralized German state, it's the cultural bourgeoisie who sort of exert this power and play this this huge role in shaping a nascent national imaginary, and they shape it in their own image. And so you get this sort of long-standing um, ideology in Germany about the nation as a place that's not just a kind of um, land of thinkers and poets, as the epithet famously goes, but also one that is sort of home to the world's creativity. And this ideology is um, very strong. It's enduring um, contemporarily. And you it's, it's so powerful, in fact, that you see the institutions of literature are even leveraged to gain access to support systems. You can get expedited asylum under this particular regime. So there's a kind of institutional power and I also think it's, it's such a part of this national image of themselves that it's, it's one of the most ready at hand kind of resources that people go to for thinking about difference uh, in their everyday lives. So I saw that literature was, was sort of, it was, it was if anything, it was conspicuous by its absence in the social science literature on migration in Germany. It's such an important social institution in this country um, that you, you kind of can't miss it. And within that broader discourse, there are certainly cities that are loom larger in the national book market, right? Um, but Berlin has come to be kind of equated with this idea of a global city, not necessarily because of it plays a sort of role as a command point in techno finance, as many sociological definitions will, will um, sort of articulate, but... Because it's a place where uh, people from around the world come to talk about and to share art, and it has this sort of liberal positive image within the discourse. I argue in the book that that also has this sort of dark shadow, that that's what enables a kind of nationalist disavowal of the nation when people say things like, well, Berlin isn't Germany, or I, I cite the famous Mark Twain quip that the only thing you can't learn in Berlin is German. Um, that enables a certain kind of nationalist undertone in what in in the way that people talk about Berlin as a kind of cosmopolitan destination, sort of destination. So I wanted to sort of look at how that discourse was shaped, and also what it meant to live under that discursive regime for the people who were moving to and through Berlin on these sort of intersecting pathways.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And yeah, and, you know, this also made me think you mentioning literature's conspicuous absence, right? We can also maybe talk about that absence in anthropology. Um, You know, maybe as a follow up to this question, uh, I'm wondering you know, if you could tell us a little bit about why making present this absence of literature in an anthropological text was important to you?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting and great question. I think in the last several decades, there's been this so-called turn to literature and anthropology. And I think that takes a, a very different sorts of forms. One of the most famous has been this idea of what we have to learn about what we're doing by thinking of it as a kind of literary endeavor. And what I see in that is sometimes a turn away actually from concrete practices of literature, that this is something people are doing all the time, that it's part of everyday life. And I also think one of the arguments that I come to in the book is that sometimes we think that by writing literarily or by imagining that what we're doing is um, is literary in some ways, we can fall into the ideological trap of thinking that literature has some kind of magic powers um, that address an anxiety or a skepticism that lines the anthropological project in which we're always sort of struggling to find new ways to address, namely, how do I know about what's going on over there? Um, so there's some there's some way in which I think the turn to literature has been a way of responding to that that worry that anxiety that that haunts the anthropological endeavor, and I think is actually reflected in the liberal discourse from Berlin. So in a way, when I write about how that ideolo- ideology operates in today's Berlin, I'm also writing about anthropology and about what we could stand to learn from the ways that people are engaging um, with creative language practices at the level of everyday life. I think it's it's something that I'm very committed to not thinking literature is a kind of departure from the so-called real world or from the nitty-gritty of, of everyday life. It's something that people really live with. It matters to people. The characters are ones that are part of our Lives. They walk our streets. They have emotional attachments to us and us to them. And there's this whole sort of imbrication that we have with literature. So I wanted to sort of foreground that. And I think you're I think you're absolutely right that there's a sort of parallel with the way that I think about what anthropology is that sort of shadows the whole book.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for you know, giving us such rich, big picture ideas to think with. And, you know, you mentioned how people live with literature. So I want to turn a little bit to the specific sites you take us through in which people, you know, live with literature in Berlin. Um, So, for example, I'm thinking about literary workshops where political encounters are and social ties are in the making, as you show us. And you particularly point us to prosody to understand these social relations. So um, I'd love to hear more about why prosody in particular and what kinds of social ties and encounters become possible to see through this lens.
0: Yeah, this is a, this is a great question. And this is a chapter in the book um, where there's a workshop that focuses primarily on poetry and to a certain extent young people's poetry. And it's located in this part of town that for a while was really important for the sort of cultural avant-garde, to subversive literary projects and so forth. But by the time I got there, it was already pretty thoroughgoingly gentrified. It was a different, a different neighborhood than it was at that earlier moment, but it still had that kind of um, history. Um, and with the exception of the workshop director. Um, there was this sort of never-ending churn of new faces in the audience, new participants, new kinds of events. And now when you read the sort of classic texts of social theory, you hear a lot about how important the circulation of literature was under print capitalism to the establishment and maintenance of these kind of vast social formations like the nation, and that are characterized usually by different kinds of stranger sociality. The fact that books can move through the world so far and so vast, or or newspapers for that matter, means that we can be brought into a kind of sociality by our mere attention, to use Michael Warner's famous formulation about this. Um, There's also an assumption that the relationships that we care about as social scientists are the enduring ones, um, even though at this scale, we're talking about often rather alienated kinds of relationships. So that was the sort of dominant thing I saw in the literature. Um, Very often, the more fleeting, the sort of less enduring relationships are either treated as kind of uh, degenerate forms of more enduring ones, um, or, or and are often associated with oral literary practice as opposed to written literature. This idea that um, literacy is sort of more enduring and is sort of tied to these sort of longstanding but alienated social relationships, whereas orality and the face-to-face, that sort of stuff, um, was more fleeting and then less sort of of interest. So, that's a long sort of background to say that what I was I was looking for was a vocabulary that would allow me to take these lessons seriously from from social theory, but to also to show how these other kinds of social ties were intersecting them, namely the concrete face to face sorts of encounters that were fleeting and that were mediated by literature, but and that these weren't any less worthy of study than the more enduring ones, so what happened is actually that a close friend of mine suggested that prosody, a term that I'm sort of borrowing from from poetics, uh, would be really apt because it captures something about the way that these different tempos and rhythms and stresses within social life are woven together. And I wanted a way to capture the fact that not to deny that those alienated relations happen or that those large-scale circulations happen but also to bring into the story these face-to-face kinds of things that people are sharing literature They're people were really committed to the idea that being together and present to hear um, poetry being read did something somewhat different than other experiences of uh, literature. And so prosody was was my sort of way of speaking to that heterogeneous quality of sociality within this particular workshop.
1: Mm, yeah, that's so interesting. And you know, it made me think about another part of the book that centers on literary tours, um, which are informed by Walter Benjamin's flaneur. And yeah, I was thinking about how, you know, walking becomes a way to again, challenge these binaries between what's fleeting and what's permanent. Um, And you especially show us how um, memory is made and remade in Berlin through this medium, right? Um, And yeah, I was wondering if you could talk to us about moving on foot and what about that activity and returning to particular urban spaces do to constitute a grammar of memory
0: that's a great question. So this is a this is a group of artists that uh, appear in this chapter, who, as you say, are are inspired by people like Walter Benjamin and Franz Hessel, and who are interested in this figure the flâneur that is maybe um, well known to students of social science now as a kind of main major icon of social theory. Um, and what this group did was they created a magazine that was. In, invested in the idea that walking was itself a kind of literary practice. It was a way of recovering these traces of life, one city street at a time. And based on the work that they did in this magazine, they also created this walking tour, which is actually how I got involved with this particular group. And what I think is, is really interesting about this idea that there's a literary way of walking the street is, is one, this point that you raised that Um, It sort of troubles those old binaries that we have, right, that literature is this sort of thing, but not this sort of thing. Um, And it also opened up this whole way of thinking what it would mean to return over and over again to the same kinds of sites. So if in one sense, um, the old image was of wandering through the city and finding always new pathways. The thing that was slightly different about this project was that they were going over and over and over on the same street. It was part of a literary practice. It was part of the tour. They just kept rewalking it. And I connect that um, to this idea about cliché, which has had this um, important history in the way that people think about memory culture in in Germany uh, ever since at least Hannah Arendt. And I try to suggest that maybe there's something more going on with cliche or with returning over and over to the same place where something actually quite new can appear. It's not as if rewalking a street or returning to some kind of language is just a matter of reproducing exactly the same thing, but actually it's the kind of thing where newness can yet emerge. And in a context where memory culture is so... Weighted down by the standing discourse, where there's so little space to think differently about memory and particularly memories of violence. Um, We're seeing this sort of return again and again in contemporary discourse. Doing what is sort of unexpected, which is doing the same thing over and over again. is actually a very creative way of thinking differently. Now, we can say it, it fails or it succeeds, and I think that they are themselves open to that, but it's at least an effort to think about how this seemingly mundane practice, or this truly mundane practice of just walking down a street, can actually open up different pathways for relating to uh, history and and to the future, ultimately.
1: Right, um, that's so interesting. and. I guess my next question is, <laughs> I can imagine maybe one you might be tired of, but I'm still going to ask it. <laughs> um, so, you know, even in our conversation, you have mentioned gentrification and how cities change. And in the book, we see how that looms large in writers' lives. In the book, we also see conversations that you have with bookmakers and about sort of the market for Certain kinds of literature. And, you know, I kept thinking about the specter of capitalism that seems to be haunting Berlin, perhaps uh, like everywhere else. Um, And, you know, while I was reading the book, I have to admit I was enticed to think that what makes Berlin literary in the first place seems to be slowly melting in the air. But You, in the book, interfere and encourage your reader um, to think in a different direction. You encourage us to think about the frictions in capitalism that still move literary lives. So, yeah, I'd love to hear more about what was at stake for you in making this broader gesture throughout the book.
0: Yeah, you're right. This is something that's on a lot of people's minds. Anybody who spent time in <laughs> Berlin um, is fascinated by this. And it, it is a really tricky thing. And I, I, I sort of made a methodological choice because on the one hand, it's, it's obviously true that there's something about the economic situation, particularly earlier about the cost of living, the availability of certain kinds of employment, um, housing, the politics around that. Um that were that was and is one of the main reasons it was possible for people to pursue a literary life in Berlin. It's also um, one of the reasons that people can take maybe risks with certain kinds of literature and certain kinds of bookstores that they um, might not have been able to in a different economic situation. And you're absolutely right that that situation has changed dramatically. Um, it's changed maybe at a different rate and at a different sort of quality than in other cities, but uh, it is changing and um, housing remains a major, major political contestation zone and cost of living remains very, um, very precarious. Um, But what I wanted to leave open was this idea that so many people were articulating to me that there's something about this that shows that capital had not yet exhausted all possibilities of social experience and that there were other possibilities. Now, I, I think no one was under the delusion that they lived outside of capital. I don't think, um, you know, that I'm not arguing that anybody was making a kind of naive claim about the fact that their business was somehow not part of capital system or that capital wasn't totalizing. But as you, I think, rightly say, they, they were sort of invested in an idea that there was at least space for friction and free space for other kinds of possibilities. One of the things that... Um, most or many of the people that I worked with talked about was the fact of certain kinds of legal regulations that intervene in the market that are slightly different than in comparable markets, although not necessarily the EU, but you have the fixed pricing system, um, which I think many people feel is very important for the way that the market functions. Um, Pretty large state and uh, national investment in subsidizing the cost of literary projects. Um, those kinds of things allow for the commodity to to exist in a slightly different way than in other commodities. Uh, again, I don't think anybody thinks that that means it's not a commodity or that it isn't having that life, but it means that there are certain possibilities for it. And my point here is, is you know, as an, a scholar of this sort of situation, is not to s- evaluate their claims. I'm not um, trying to say, look how successful <laughs> these folks have been in resisting capital. I'm not even sure that the people that I work with would say that. But rather to show that this was a major part of how people thought about and talked about um, different policies and um, different possibilities for themselves. Um, there's, and I take a lot of different Sort of cases: people who are making books, people who are selling books. In order to show that there was there was another kind of sociality to those rhythms um, that is important for us to take seriously, in addition to the the I think justified critiques about the totalizing nature of capital and encroachment and condensation of the market and all those kinds of um, forces that we see in. All over the world, of course. Um, but um, I wanted to take to leave some room for thinking in multiple ways uh, about this without falling into those usual stories.
1: Yeah, and I really appreciated that room. <laughs> it really comes across nicely in the book. Um Also, because I have the privilege of uh, hosting (laughs) this episode, I'll get to ask you about perhaps one of my favorite chapters, which was on translatability and political exile. So can you tell us about the political weight of translatability for exilic writers and poets? And what are the possibilities and impossibilities that come with translation in exile?
0: Yeah, this is a really tricky and important question to me. I think... um... This chapter is definitely a sort of pivot point or a kind of hinge for a lot of different things. I I mentioned a little earlier to one of the earlier questions about how literature can be and is so often leveraged to facilitate the migratory regime. And one of the requirements or the prerequisites of so-called welcome under that regime is that writers have to make themselves legible in certain ways to the expectations and the scripts of the European discourse. In other words, their work has to be made equivalent or exchangeable with European examples of literature and yet at the same time bear the traces of that difference in in exactly ways that the European markets can anticipate so in that chapter what I'm trying to do is juxtapose two different strategies of responding to this situation and like like the other chapters I'm, I'm sort of I want to tamp down the kind of triumphalist story about the um, this sort of liberal cosmopolitan space that many people feel there's this is something great about this, but there's also, but also leave room for for different political possibilities. So there's, there's one writer who I talk about early on, who is, who decides to sort of perform those scripts um, and sort of makes their experiences exchangeable or puts them side by side with the experiences of Uh, Germans during the Cold War, things like that. Uh, And there are also those who refuse. And in the case of the poet whose life and whose experiences I talk about the most in that chapter, and who I know pretty well, she's kind of unwilling to accept those terms. And there are real concrete sort of consequences of that, right? It means... Losing access to various kinds of funds, losing supports means people come with translations that she saw as unsatisfactory and that um, she just was not willing to to accept for herself. It means being cut off in various kinds of ways from different social possibilities. Um, And so it's choosing to sort of remain unknown uh, and to sort of bear that uh, is is a deeply political choice, right? I think this is not a this is not a story of what a certain kind of social science might call a failure to acclimate or something like that. This is a political um, um, gesture, a sort of refusal of what I think of as a kind of masculine desire to know and to say, no, I'd, I'd rather <laughs> rather sort of remain unknown. And for a writer, that's that's a particularly kind of cut, right? It is a kind of wounding experience for her. And she's had these very troubling um, experiences with people who are offering liberal forms of help and, and welcome that are themselves can be quite violent. Um, and what I wanted to sort of show was that these are not to evaluate different strategies, but to show that there are different ways in which somebody might respond to this ostensive welcome, and that Carrie. Very serious, sometimes life and death kind of consequences for their their lives and what what is possible for them, and you know to say nothing of the of the consequences for their writing. Um, You know, in this case, this is somebody who was writing originally in Tunisian Arabic and was unhappy with some of the work that's been done around German translations, and she. Decides actually to give up both and to start writing in in English, and it's um, you know this whole politics of translation is not just a kind of abstract exercise. I suppose that's what I wanted to get across. It's something that 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 really has effects on people's lives.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think um, it's really interesting to see you know translation as not just this you know, a beautiful bridge that brings together, you know, different languages and forms of art, but, you know, is indeed political and at times something people choose to refuse. So um, I think this explains why I really enjoyed this chapter. Um, But I kind of want to, um, you know, turn to you a little bit. So while I was reading the book and this chapter, I was also thinking about your role in the book and throughout the research as a translator of sorts so you know you translate between like languages German English and perhaps others but I also saw you as someone translating between um, genres in a way um, especially as someone you know who's perhaps making legible um, literature as a practice to uh, ethnographers and anthropologists so uh, I'd love to learn more about whether you consider translation as part of your methodological toolkit, or perhaps you also considered refusal of translation um, throughout your process.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a fabulous question. And I think it's, I have very complicated relationship to this, as you can imagine, based on my experience working with so many folks. Um, Certainly at some level it is, right? Of course, uh, I am involved in all kinds of translation. I don't, I don't consider myself particularly good at it. Uh, (laughs) It's more challenging than I anticipated. (laughs) Um, But of of course it is something that I am, that I am engaged with. There are ways in which my capacity to move between particular languages obviously is privileged in all kinds of ways that can be helpful for folks. It can be harmful for folks. Um, I think as you rightly point out, there's also limits to that. Um, I don't speak many of the languages that I heard or of people that were engaged um, in these sites. And I think that's something that rather than scrubbing that out and making it look clean, I wanted to acknowledge the fact that that is just part of what life is like in this context, that there's lots of languages people hear all the time that they don't necessarily understand. Um, And so I made a choice and to the consternation of copy editors and things to leave certain words untranslated and uncommented upon um, in the book um, because I wanted to retain that sense that that was a normal feature of life and language. That was something that was not an aberration, but was a sort of the usual course of events in a certain kind of way. Um, And so as an ethnographer, I wanted to preserve that to sort of maybe to refuse translation in certain situations, at least in a sort of practical sense, um, and to do different kinds of things. I think the other, so that's one kind of gamble. I think another kind of gamble methodologically um, with regard to translation is that I don't see translation as the only way that people are moving among languages. in the book and in in my work. and I think maybe the genre question speaks to that, that I think there are other ways of picturing movements within and among languages that aren't that easily assimilable to the usual picture of translation with its clear-cut origins and its targets and all those sorts of things. I think the way we usually talk about translation carries with it its own linguistic ideology. Um, and that's something that I wanted to trouble both at the level of the sort of arguments of the book, but also in, in the form that I wanted to sort of allow those movements um, to 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 take other forms. Um, I think one way you could think about this, and maybe this is another way of, of answering the genre question, is in the relationship between the chapters. I was very resistant to the idea that. I, want, I didn't want to write a book where everything fit into a neat narrative, where there was a master concept under which everything could be sort of organized and made perfectly legible. Um, it takes work to make ourselves legible, and it fails sometimes, and we struggle to do it, and there's friction. So I wanted to leave those kinds of tensions and those sort of lines of connection across different chapters Pretty open. I wanted there to be ways that you could read the chapter earlier that you were talking about about um, the market and see how that impinges in all kinds of ways on the other chapters, even if it's not the sort of explicit object of attention in that particular other chapter. So I think that's one way of also thinking about it, that there's there's other kinds of movements going on here in addition to translation, which is obviously something we have to deal with. and that, are, that is just, it's just sort of messy. In a certain <laughs> time. I tell my students all the time that anthropologists respond to other disciplines often by saying things are just more complicated. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I for one appreciate how you left things messy, but in a unmessy messy way. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, speaking on your process of writing and thinking—I um, was also, you know, really intrigued by this idea of, you know, tracing literature as it is lived, right? And throughout the book, it seemed to me that, um, you know, you employed sort of very careful um, kinds of reading and listening, uh, especially, you know, to the feel of words. Um, so. Yeah. Can you speak to how you ethnographically attend to not just words and how they come into being, but how they
0: feel? Yeah. So this is a, this is a lesson that I take to have, I take myself to have learned from this Berlin-based writer, Yoko Tawada, who's I think becoming quite popular um, these days about being attentive, not just to the way that we usually take ourselves to be understanding or meaning words, which is like by definitions or other things like that. Um, but actually the fact that words are said to work or not based on something like our intuited sense that they feel right or they don't in a particular um, in a particular context. And I, that's something that I sort of see a connection between that and between a, a thinker like Wittgenstein that I develop in, in the last chapter of the book. it it also comes along with this idea that language is doing many different things in any particular sort of situation. It certainly communicates, but it's, it is also itself something like an experience. It's something that, um, we experience bodily. Mm -hmm. So one way to think about that, um, is this experience that is common to, I think people living in many different contexts of, of hearing words ostensibly in different languages that maybe you don't speak, um, but maybe they sound like a word that you're familiar with, or um, they have some kind of they they have a kind of sense to you in a particular way. The image that that Towada gives that I think is really helpful is like sitting on a bus and overhearing multiple conversations in ostensibly different languages, and being attentive to the fact that um, one might have different feelings attached to those things, or that there's these possibilities for interlingual puns because of homonyms and. Not treat that as a kind of um, either as something weird or aberrational, and and but as something that is what it is to live life in language as humans, uh, and that it opens up different kinds of possibilities. I think one of the other lessons that Tawada's work shows is um, you might have the feeling that your words are at home uh in quote unquote other languages i think this is something that shows up really well in the way that she talks about reading salon in translation and that all of a sudden it's like the poem found a home in this other language and i think that's something that i wanted to sort of leave open and that's sort of speed that's a sort of methodological commitment but it's also one that i glean from my experiences in the field and the ways that people were transversing this. I think it speaks very much to your your earlier question around translation, actually, that um, this is what everyday life looks like. It's also what life looks like in workshops. Um, I've had this experience many times of sitting with people where, and no one but the speaker in the room speaks the language that's being uh, that the poem is being delivered in. And yet people feel like they can comment on some aspect of it. There's a way in which you get this feel of what the words are doing. That is different, obviously, than there, um than giving and providing ostensive definitions, as uh, Wittgenstein would put it.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, that is that is really interesting. Um, and you know something else perhaps related that really caught my eye in the book was how you approach context right so throughout moving words you never take context for granted but you reveal how it's in the making by the weaving together of words and worlds um so perhaps you know we can turn to um you know the title of the book, and perhaps you can talk about what is at stake in naming words and worlds as a different thing, but also what is at stake in bringing them together and ethnographically writing about a context where they're constantly being weaved together and sort of keeping with that kind of ongoing moment
0: yeah, this is it's a really interesting question. I think there's there's probably two-ish or maybe more aspects of of how I think about this particular question. Um, I think one is that as we've been sort of talking about, I wanted to trace the limits of a certain kind of linguistic ideology, Um, namely that languages have these discrete noble borders as as, um, Susan Gall would talk about it, but that they're typifying of people, those kinds of things. And that in literature, um, it's also something that we are sort of doomed to fail in translating, but it also has this magic power um, to tell me exactly what's going on for somebody else. Um, and I wanted to challenge all those kinds of suppositions, not not least of which was the sup- this sort of binary opposition between the literary world and the quote-unquote real world, um, or between words and world. Um, this idea that there's this gap and that our words are either normally inadequate to the world, and so we need literature to get a better handle on reality. That's that's one sort of claim um, that I would contest. And I think context plays a, a key role in this. The way that I I sort of think about context is it's not as if context is a Sort of rigid frame that other stuff, social action is happening within, but that it's being built, as, as you brought out in the question, it's sort of being woven uh, in every particular instance. There's a passage that I cite from a philosopher who's been very influential to me in this, thinking about this that it's not as if, um, you know, when I learn to use words, I'm in this particular context and then I'm just doomed because that context may never recur and I can never use them. Of course, that's not how we use language. We're able to project words into future situations, um, but we don't do that by simply reproducing the context. There's an exploratory quality of the way that we always live in language, not when we're just doing things that are marked as literary. There's a sort of um, open capacity. Now that might mean that it fails. That our, our attempt to project a word into this context doesn't work. Uh, it doesn't feel right to go back to your earlier question, but it is also the kind of thing where, when it works, something has something has changed. Something new has has sort of emerged with it. Um, it transforms the word in a basic kind of way. Um, so that's one sort of way of responding to the to the context question. I think is also the second one is this kind of methodological. Commitment that I make not to start with the definition of literature. I think one question that I got a lot when I was in graduate school and subsequently is, "Okay, great, it's a book about the ethnography of literature. Well, which literature? What counts as literature? What doesn't count as literature? What are you interested in? Um, give us a definition so we know you're surveying, kind of thing. Uh, at least a, a kind of definition that could be given a propositional form. And that's something I resist." Um, pretty wholeheartedly. I I think of ethnography as something where you have to go looking. You have to look into particular expressive uh, contexts. So as a sort of commitment, I wanted to go see how people were using those terms. When do you call something literature? When do you not call something literature? And it's not clear to me that that's the sort of thing that I can know in advance, as if I just look up the rule, this is an example of literature or not, that's a power laden process, and it doesn't work like that. Um, So I take ethnography to be my way of going to see where that term feels right, (laughs) where it works, Um, you know, where we have the sense that it can be used in this context, where other people have the sense that it can be used in this context. Um, And I think that's That's sort of what motivates the whole methodological project, in a sense. Um, So I think that's also a way of thinking about about context. I'm going looking for the right context in which this word works or doesn't.
1: Yeah, that's really rich, and I think it will be... Um, very helpful for some of our listeners who are thinking about what to go look for, right? What to go feel for. Um, so I really appreciate that. Um, so as we come for a close, um, I'd love to know what's next for you. What are some new teaching projects or research projects or literary projects that you're working on right now?
0: So I just started a new project, um, which I've started writing um. More or less in the last couple of months, which is an attempt to look at the kinds of things that anthropologists are reading, um, not necessarily when they're, say, writing a project about um, XYZ and they're to have to read the books of that context or something like that, but actually, like what is normally sort of partitioned out. And they would say, this is, oh, this is unrelated reading, this is this different history reading. And to look into what role the companionship of literature in our lives? The fact that we have favorite books and characters and stories and things that we carry with us. How does that interact with our picture of anthropology? And does that open up different ways of thinking about what it is that we're we're up to um, when we do? whatever it is we think anthropology is. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of working now on a series of essays that'll make up this book or a series of chapters, each of which tries to look at a particular figure and to go into their histories of, of reading and to see what gets opened up. Um, by approaching the question that way, I've, I've always sort of had this interest in the history of anthropology, um, and in a way, I'm turning some of the methodological questions that have developed in my first book back onto the discipline. I think, um, as you were saying before we got on the on the recording, there's, the whole book is a sort of. Um, the first book, Moving Words, is a is a sort of reflection on different pictures of anthropology at one level. It is, it is also a response to anthropology um, that is at times critical, at times hopeful. Um, my teacher describes her relationship uh, to anthropology as a love affair. I think um, it has that kind of quality also as, as one of the sort of major subtexts of that text. And so this project, this new project is actually picking up some of those strands and to think more about what um, that looks like, specifically through this language that I think of as companionship. If the two sort of standard ways of thinking about the relationship that we have to literature in anthropology is either it's a kind of tool I use to do better anthropological writing, or it's a sort of object of ethnographic research, obviously, which I'm myself engaged in. This is slightly different, which is that There are are these books that have a life uh, with us. Um, It's sort of like the hallway conversations that are also part of the weave of our thinking. And so I'm interested in what that companionship does. If we start from um, that image of the kind of relationship that literature and anthropology might have to one another, what does that change in the way that we think about um, what we're doing?
1: That sounds really exciting and sounds like another thread into words and worlds. Hopefully when that's out, we'll have you back. But for now, thank you very much, Andrew, for joining us and for your insights.
0: Thank you so much. This is so wonderful.
1: This is your host, Aliza Jan. This discussion of moving words, literature, memory, and migration in Berlin, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2023, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.